This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Over the last few years, getting around in some cities has gotten a lot more flexible and accessible. It's electric skateboards, it's electric scooters, it's electric bicycles. Green scooters, black scooters, <laughs> orange scooters. Cargo bicycles that have three wheels and kids being taken to school. There's, there's docked and there's dockless. 30%, 35%, 40% of commutes happening by bicycle. But does more traffic in the bike lane mean a fundamental change in urban mobility? What is a game changer is just the profusion of choices that uh, we increasingly have. People don't have to think about where's my car keys, they just have to think about choosing between affordability, you know, how quick it is, how comfortable, or with scooters or bike shares, how fun it is. New wheels in town, up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. Electric scooters, skateboards, and bicycles are suddenly sprouting on sidewalks and in parking spaces around the country. If you haven't seen them yet where you live, you might soon. In 2017, the number of shared bikes doubled to 100,000 nationwide, and investors are pouring money into more than 30 startup companies deploying bikes and scooters around commercial and residential neighborhoods. Anything that makes transportation more affordable, more accessible, uh, more equitable, potentially is worth a lot. Sanjay Dastur is co-founder of Boosted Boards and CEO of Skip Scooters, two of those new mobility companies. But some older startups are also getting into the bike and scooter game. If you open the Uber app, they want to have ride hailing, they want to have bike share, they want to have electric scooters. That's Megan Rose Dickey, a senior reporter with TechCrunch. Uber's business model famously caught officials in many cities off guard. The newer mobility companies are facing stricter requirements as they deploy around the country. Regulators are quickly coming up to speed on, oh yeah, we kind of control the streets, we can ask for uh, things that meet our equity and climate and other goals. Stuart Cohen is executive director of Transform, a transit advocacy group. He joined host Greg Dalton, along with Megan Rose Dickey and Sanjay Dastur, at a recent Climate One event to discuss the new urban mobility. Sanjay, let's begin with you. Uh, seven years ago, you started Boosted Boards. What was your inspiration and your goal starting a skateboards company? Yeah, it was an odd choice because I'd never skateboarded before. Um, <laughs> but we were, uh, a group of us were in graduate school at Stanford. Stanford has a very spread out campus and Palo Alto as a city is a little bit far from campus for walking. And so the boosted board was kind of a, a fun thing we built for ourselves to be able to get around the campus and cover these short trips in between buildings or parking lots or being able to take it onto the Caltrain system, the, the, the transit system in the Bay Area, um, and be able to cover these short distances. And what we found was that people liked it because it was interesting and cool, but then after they started to use it, they said, wow, this actually changed the way that I get around my city. So it started, you know, the classic story of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, you know, uh, solving a problem in their life and starting a company to, to, uh, to address that. Uh, Megan Rose Dickey, where is this happening? To give us a sense of the geographic scope of these scooters and bikes that are popping up. Yeah, I mean, it's worldwide, especially with bike share. We see bike share in um, in China, like it, that's where it really kind of took off. And then with with these electric scooters, we're seeing them all across the nation in San Francisco and Austin, Texas, and Santa Monica, California, Venice, California, Washington, D.C. <laughs> um, I think there are some in North Carolina. They're they're kind of just popping up all over the the state and. And even Lime, for example, they have some scooters over in Switzerland. 
and the rollout, how these things have appeared has had a big impact on how they've been received by, by citizens. So uh, Megan, tell us how they rolled out in San Francisco and how that compares to the rollout in other cities, because there's been quite a difference in the way they've <laughs> yeah. kind of shown up. Yeah, it wasn't great the way that they rolled out <laughs> in San Francisco. And a lot of city regulators were pretty upset with, uh, with Bird, Lime, and Spin. And so they mm -hmm. just deployed on the streets, and next thing you know, people are on like green scooters, black scooters, <laughs> orange scooters, just all on the sidewalks. And um, and this prompted it prompted a few things from the city of San Francisco. Uh, one was a cease and desist letter from the city attorney um, that held zero weight whatsoever, and they just kind of <laughs> stayed on the streets. But um, it later resulted in a permitting process, so similar to what. San Francisco did around uh, bike share. The um, one of San Francisco's legislative bodies then uh, worked with some city legislators to develop a permitting process to ensure that that scooters weren't totally going to ruin the city and make things super complicated. Sanjay, you came out uh, in a rolled out in a different way in in Washington D.C. A little smoother. Tell us about how that rollout happened. Yeah, so we're actually based in San Francisco. So our uh -huh. first choice to launch was was here. Um, but we knew that uh, based on how bike share had rolled out in San Francisco, there would be a permitting process. So we chose to work with uh, a city on creating a permit and launching with their permission first. And Washington, D.C. already had a permitting process for dockless bike share. Um, so they had already created this process, and we were able to work with the DOT, the Department of Transportation, locally in Washington, D.C. to create kind of a sub-permit for dockless scooters and be the first to launch there in February. So did you just say functioning government in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It was lo city, local government. City local government. government. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Stuart Cohen, uh, where does this add up? Is this going to, uh, this, you know, last mile, first mile has been a, a vexing problem in transportation for a long time, getting to and from a train or a bus. Um, is this a game changer? Uh, I think we still have to wait to see whether it's a game changer. I think what is a game changer is just the profusion of choices that uh, we increasingly have. Add this on to bike share, add this on to Uber, Lyft, including their shared services, uh, chariot. There's all of these other, you know, shuttles that are starting. Having all of those and es essentially, essentially, once they become either all in one app or just very easy to organize brings to what you said, mobility as a service. When people don't have to think about where's my car keys, they just have to think about what are my best options for getting there, the, you know, mm -hmm. choosing between affordability, you know, how quick it is, how comfortable, or with scooters or bike shares, how fun it is. Megan Rose Dickey, for those who haven't had the experience, explain for us, there's docked bike share and there's dockless. So explain to us the experience for people who've kind of seen it, but actually haven't done it. Yeah. So on one hand, there's uh, docked. So essentially, there are these like stands of maybe like 10 or so bikes, and you go up to the little kiosk, you get your bike, and then you return it at some other kiosk like throughout the city. And then there's... You can pay by credit card for a single trip or have a monthly subscription. Right, you can have a monthly subscription if you'd like. And then there's dockless. Um, and there's a couple of different forms of dockless. <laughs> so there's lock two, which means that you actually lock the bike to a physical structure like 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 a bike rack it doesn't it can be any old bike rack or it can be a pole but then there's also more like free floating dockless where it just the bike just kind of locks to itself in san francisco we have lock two bikes and that's via jump bikes which is now owned by uber 
and uh, these exist all over. I've used them in Ottawa, Canada, Washington, D.C., and you can just go as a tourist and do this all over. Um, Sanjay, explain for us now scooters. Uh, scooters usually are not docked. They're all over the place. So what's it like? You just walk up, and what do you do? Yeah, so, so scooters kind of passed the docked phase and went straight into dockless and free-floating. So the, the history of bike share was that you'd have this kiosk, and the kiosk would the bike would be physically attached to the kiosk. You'd need to unlock it to even remove it, and so it you know, removes issues like theft and parking. Then the downside is that you have to find the next kiosk to drop it off at. So if you're thinking about your trip, you've got the time to walk to the nearest dock, the time you'd spend kind of unlocking the bike and getting it set up, adjusting the seat height, the times you spend riding, and then the time you spend potentially getting to a, a, the next dock and finding it as full. That happens, to to the yeah. next one. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this rebalancing problem where you have to move the bikes between kiosks to make sure that you've got enough, but not too many at any <laughs> given dock. Um, the way that the scooters are working is similar to how dockless um, bike shares worked in China, which is that you simply walk up and using a smartphone, you use the camera to scan a code or to type in a code on your phone, and that vehicle is actually connected to the internet all the time. And so it connects the server, gets a signal, and unlocks, and now you can ride it. And then when you get to your destination, you use your phone again to simply lock it. And so it could be free-floating, which means that it's not connected to anything and could be in the way, or it could be locked to, in which case it's hopefully against a pole or a bike rack. We sent someone on the streets of San Francisco to get a reaction to this new uh, collision of scooters and pedestrians. Let's hear bought one of these scooters recently. It's pretty cool. This is a Xiaomi scooter, electric scooter. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. They were all over the city recently, but then the city took them down, so I just bought my own. It's pretty convenient for like a mile or so kind of distance. I walk a lot all over. I hate scooters on the sidewalks, riding on the sidewalks as bad as I hate bicycles and skateboards. I think this was a godsend. I think, I think this is very convenient using these bikes to get to work. Uh, I used to be part of the city bike share before Ford bought them, and I'm like, probably continue using it. I actually may buy my own electric bike one day. I'm sold on it. Unfortunately, I'm not a big fan of none of those. The skateboard is the worst, you know. They just zigzag through the street. It's really dangerous, you know. I'm saving up for an electric bike right now because it's just easier to get around. I haven't owned a car in like 30 years. I wanted to go a little faster than people walking. I did feel like people were in my way. And and uh, some people seemed like they would step out right in front of me. And I'm just like, come on, are you doing this on purpose? <laughs> I think if everybody was riding scooters in the city, it would probably be a lot nicer. Um, that being said, if it's like there's scooters and bikes and skateboards and people and all that sort of stuff, then it's like very, it becomes very challenging. Voices from the streets of San Francisco. Sanjay Destro, your reaction to that? To love them, hate them, uh, hurry up, get out of the way? Well, I, I think a lot of it comes down to user behavior and not just the vehicle itself. I mean, we have reckless drivers and we have safe drivers. Uh, we have people who double park their cars, you know, park them on sidewalks, block pedestrian access with their cars just as much as we do with these vehicles. Um, and so I think a lot of it... And comes we don't blame the cars, we blame the driver. <clears throat> exactly, yeah. Okay. yeah. And so I, I think, uh, you know, having access to these vehicles can bring out both the best and the worst in someone when they think about how they're impacting the people around them. I think a lot of the conversation has been about the riders and about the 
the, the businesses. I think there's another conversation to be had around the people who don't ride. So if you think about the, the folks who are, you know, these scooters or bikes or other vehicles are in their way, how, how does this work with them? Um, but I think a lot of that comes down to education, uh, proper etiquette, advocacy, and actually building systems that work well. So for example, in Washington, D.C., the reason we didn't make the news there is because <laughs> there hasn't been this kind of backlash, right? We actually worked with the city, we worked with the National Park Service, we worked with the different police departments, um, we worked with citizen groups in D.C., and so we created a, a, a very formal and structured rollout process where there was a way for people to make sure that we were doing our job. And as a result, we haven't been in the news there because it actually is working great. Yeah, Megan, let's get your take on what you heard from the people on the street and this kind of this new culture evolving very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think I think two of the the biggest issues around this this influx of electric scooters in cities is um, one them being on sidewalks. So. Um, like not only is it frustrating for pedestrians who are able-bodied, but think about people who um, are in wheelchairs, and then next thing you know, there's a scooter in the middle of the sidewalk. Like it doesn't. It's easier to navigate that if you're able-bodied, but not so much if you're if you're in a wheelchair. And so, like that space needs to be clear in order to um, to really like have sidewalks be accessible to everyone. And then. The second thing is around people not wearing helmets. So companies have said, oh, well, we, we encourage our riders to wear helmets, but at the end of the day, you can't, it's hard to actually force someone to put on a helmet. And some companies are saying, oh, well, we'll, we'll let people like pick up helmets like at our office or et cetera. But um, I think it's hard to incentivize people to always do the right thing and the safe thing. And Sanjay, are helmets kind of a deterrent? They're kind of like a, another piece of paraphernalia that's like takes away a little bit of the joy, complicates the experience. Well, yeah, if you look at cities that have very strong biking populations, so if you look at places like Amsterdam or, or Copenhagen, uh, you know, they have 30%, 35%, 40% of commutes happening by bicycle. Uh, most people there don't wear helmets. Um, and actually not requiring a helmet in those places is partially because uh, there's great infrastructure that was built in those cities to support bicyclists that's separate from the way that cars are treated and the speed that which cars are going next to the bicycles. And partially it's because helmet usage, you know, deep, I mean, adds more uh, friction, one more thing to do. Right. I think for shared systems to succeed, if you look at City Bike in New York, for example, um, you know they don't require helmets. That program has been very successful, or Ford Go Bike here in, in, in San Francisco. Um, so I think the future eventually is fewer people will be using helmets than will be. But I think it's important to have access to those helmets so that if someone wants to be safer, they have the opportunity to do so. Uh, Stuart Cohen, uh, you know, is this a case of you know nanny government? Should re government regulate safety in this place, or should it kind of like provide a safe place? Don't regulate helmets. Well, I, I think government should push safety, but I, I do think the main danger out there continues to be vehicles and vehicle collisions um, with people. And so um, I, I think Sanjay's right that when we hear about all these people complaining about it being on the sidewalk, let's take that energy and create more space on our streets for shared vehicles and for these sustainable modes of, of bikes and scooters. I think the scooters, you know, you have to go pretty slow on a sidewalk, even if you are weaving between people. Um, so, so to me, it's really a call with all of these new options to get more separated infrastructure for bikes, for scooters, for things. Uh, and, and I think you're right, like with bike share, it's going to go ahead with encouragement for helmets, but I, I just don't see us getting to 100% helmet use on these. Broken bicycles, busted chains. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about new ways of getting around town. Coming up, 
Greg Dalton asks about the greenhouse gas impact of these new wheels and how to get more people using them. To encourage these more sustainable modes, we need to really rethink how transportation happens. And if we're going to have real sharing, we've got to be giving them priority. That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the new urban mobility with Megan Rose Dickey, a senior reporter with TechCrunch, Stuart Cohen, executive director of Transform, and Sanjay Dastur, CEO of Skip Scooters. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Megan Rose Dickey, why are Uber and Lyft getting into this? They, you know, what's in it for They're them? They're greedy. They want everything. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I mean, that's it. They, I mean, Uber's new-ish CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi, has said that Uber wants to become this multimodal transportation platform, meaning if you open the Uber app, they want to have ride hailing, they want to have bike share, they want to have electric scooters, they want to have aerial taxis, like they want it. And deliver oh, they a want pizza. public transit. Deliver Uber a pizza, eats. yeah. yeah. Um, and both Uber and Lyft are looking into electric scooters as well as bike share. And yeah, like I said, they just want to, they want to own transportation. So that whether it's a one-mile thing or a five-mile thing, airport run or a, a hop downtown, they exactly. want Uber to be or Lyft to be the place you go to do that. Um, Stuart Cohen, what do we know about Uber and Lyft in terms of what they're taking people out of, you know, to get into their cars? Are they coming out of transit? Where are they coming from? Yeah, well, there's been a growing number of studies, uh, but I think one of the best ones came out of UC Davis recently where they were actually able to really interview folks in seven of the largest cities and uh, found that a good number of the trips, they put it at 49 to 61%, were coming out of either walking, biking, transit, uh, or a trip that wouldn't have been made at all. About 20% of those wouldn't have been made at all. Uh, and, and so the other portion then are replacing, uh, you know, drive alone or, or carpool trips. And so they also said that, you know, there's some amount of deadheading. It's ranged between 20 to 50%. That's when they're driving, looking for somebody. So kind of putting on miles. And so uh, that report said that you can't really nail down how much extra uh, miles of travel are happening, but that directionally, uh, we're pretty sure that they're increasing the number of miles being driven on our roads. What we need to do to change that is that right now you pull up your app and it's just so convenient, both Lyft and Uber, to just go with that single ride. Uh, I know Lyft at least has started to change their app so that it will encourage shared rides, including just showing you how much less expensive it is and kind of giving you a guaranteed time. Um, and then they would be putting on, you know, bike share, scooter onto that. And so, so the benefit in some ways of having uh, Lyft and Uber get into this is that you get to see less expensive, more sustainable uh, modes stacked up against uh, what's currently something that might be increasing the amount of driving that's taking place. So that gets to the greenhouse gas impact, which ultimately is what we were concerned about here at Climate One. You know, we know that Uber and Lyft are increasing the number, amount of congestion, cars on the road. And so are you saying, Stuart Cohen, that having scooters versus, well, it's that one mile, you know, I could hop on a scooter and, and go there for a dollar and maybe they'll show me the greenhouse impact of the carbon emissions or take a car and it'll, is, is that where we're going? 
I think it is. A, a, a large number of those trips are under three miles. And that's where the bike share and scooters can really come into play. And so if, uh, you know, one of the Lyft Uber trips is $7 in that range, you know, 6 to $7, and uh, the bikes are, you know, 1 to 2, that's a very big price difference. And, uh, you know, the speed might not be all that different as well. Uh, and so... Uh, especially in downtown, it of course might be m might be <clears throat> faster. The ultimate things really um, also showing how far it would take to walk because a, a lot of trips are one to two miles, and you know by the time you wait, by the time you sit at the lights, you could do that walk in twenty five minutes, and and that's the most sustainable way to go. But to encourage that, to encourage these more sustainable modes, we need to really rethink how transportation happens, uh, and if we're going to have real sharing. Uh, of, of vehicles, uh, whether it's on transit or in, you know, Lyft and other modes, that th we've got to be giving them priority. And that's a whole separate issue. Megan Rose Dickey, transportation is a big, sometimes number two expense for some people after, mm -hmm. after housing. You know, are scooters and bikes kind of making mobility more affordable and accessible for low-income communities? Um, I would definitely say more affordable, but um, accessibility kind of depends on the the company itself. And um, like like one example, so with with Jump Jump Bikes, uh, which sold to Uber, they they first launched in a low income area in the city of San Francisco to just to kind of more deliberately say like, hey, we want to make sure that this is accessible to low income people from the get go. And then once we know that that's going to work there, then we'll kind of broaden out the, um, like the, the pilot program essentially. And that is part of the requirement for San Francisco's permitting process to show, okay, how are you gonna make sure that your, uh, that, that this form of transportation is accessible to underserved communities? Sanjay, why is this happening now? I mean, there was the Segway 15 years ago, Razor, you know, how many kids have had Razors? Scooters have been around forever. Why this sudden proliferation now? What's enabling this? Yeah, it's a few things. So I, I think there's broadly this push towards the bike lane being uh, a way to solve a lot of the transportation needs, especially of a dense city or a campus or, or a dense neighborhood. And I think a lot of that comes from whether the car lane is uh, serving us better over time or worse. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the car lane is less and less of the best solution for certain types of trips, especially in cities. And as cities get more dense and as you know, e-commerce delivery trucks are blocking lanes or as Lyft and Uber cars are pulling over, there's a sense of, well, is the car lane really the fastest and most effective way to get around? And so the bike lane has seen a, a growth in popularity. So if you look at the e even long-standing programs like City Bike uh, in New York, uh, you've seen ridership grow and the popularity of the program increase. And then separately, there's a technology component to this. Now everyone has a smartphone. They can hail a car just, you know, by pushing a few buttons on that phone. They can, uh, you can embed those same phone components into a vehicle for very, very low cost. So now these vehicles can have GPS. They can have sensors that detect if they've fallen over or not. They have full-time, you know, SIM card, cellular connections to the internet. That's all been brought about by smartphones. And so if you look at the cost of building something comparable to the Segway from 15 years ago in performance, it's much less expensive today. And then 
it's also being used in a way where people feel, oh, this is this is actually a better solution for me than the car that I used to use. Stuart Cohen, how big of a tr you know transformation is this going to be uh, in in transportation? I'd like to also connect it to autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. You know that same technological change that Sanjay just described is coming toward vehicles, and there's a lot of hype and excitement about autonomous, connected, electric, and shared vehicles. Are we gonna are the scooters a precursor for what we're gonna see in cars? Uh, I don't know if they're a precursor. Uh, you know, I think the closest precursor is kind of the Lyft-Uber model uh, because increasingly it seems like the first autonomous vehicles that we'll all get to experience will be fleet vehicles. Uh, and they'll be Way too expensive to buy. They'll be too expensive <clears throat> to buy. Uh, Waymo, which is the Google Alphabet company, um, had been kind of leaning towards, you know, supporting production and recently announced that they're going to be buying their own fleet for fleet vehicles. Uh, and that, of course, is where Uber and Lyft are going. So um, it's going to be profound. I think a, a lot of us in the planning profession, a lot of regulators are really unprepared. There's now suddenly over the last few years this profusion of conferences and papers about <laughs> will it be Armageddon, you know, no, no, awful, or will it be paradise? Um, but I think if we don't act, uh, it, it is going to be awful. And so what it could look like is a lot more driving on our streets mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it's going to become so much easier, more competitive. Uh, the price of being in an autonomous fleet vehicle will be much lower than the current kind of Uber Lyft model, uh, and uh, it will become very attractive. And so we're going to even more so need to really prioritize those trips that are made in a shared way. Uh, but we can have you know, we've been trying to get rid of single occupant vehicle trips, and now there's this whole specter of zero occupant vehicle trips uh, becoming <laughs> a large part of our transportation system. Zombie cars. Yeah. If you're just joining us, we're talking about new mobility in American cities with uh, Stuart Cohen from Transform, a Transit advocacy group, Sanjay Dastur, co-founder of Boosted Boards, and Megan Rose Dickey, senior reporter at TechCrunch. I'm Greg Dalton. Megan Rose Dickey, there's a lot more money on the it's going to be paradise side of that equation than there is it's going to be Armageddon side. There's a lot of companies that have a financial stake in selling us that rosy picture of autonomous mm -hmm. vehicles because they get to sell lots of fancy stuff to, right? Versus, uh, oh, it's going to be zombie car <laughs> gridlock, right? There's not a lot of money pushing that. So you know, comment on that because you cover the hype machine in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think the the opportunity with autonomous vehicles is that if you think of Uber and Lyft right now, they're the cars are driven by like regular good old fashioned humans and they are incentivized to be out on the road to always be looking for those fares. So I think in an ideal sort of world and maybe like what these companies are envisioning is that if there are also autonomous vehicles, then they'll know like they'll just drive themselves back to the, the factory or the depot or wherever. And they're not they're not just going to be like driving around like waiting to get that ding. Like they'll actually hopefully stop driving, get off the street, and then if they get pinged, then go back out. But Sanjay Destour, you know, the reason those Uber and Lyft drivers are all incented to be out there, it's all about that low response time. I want that car within a minute or two. I'm not waiting for where is it? And to have that, they got to be ubiquitous and everywhere. They do. And you have to have more of them than you need to account for the fact that, you know, at, at 845 in the morning to make that nine <coughs> o'clock meeting, everyone's trying to go go get in that car or to go to lunch or to come back from lunch. And so you have to have supply and demand matched. And that can often mean excess supply. And so as cities try to cope with more trips and more 
miles driven with these vehicles and there's a limited number of lanes and roads, it doesn't matter if 10% or 20% are autonomous, you're still sitting in traffic at a red light that was never designed for that volume of cars. So I actually think the bike lane, I think scooters are going to be a massive part of this, are a much better solution. And the more people we can get out of cars for these trips, whether it's into transit, whether it's into the bike lane, or whether it's walking, the better off our cities are going to be. So let's talk about that bike lane, because I've cycled a fair amount, and I'm not so hot on those scooters in that bike lane. So, um, but then people don't want them on the sidewalks either. So are, are bicycles and scooters going to happily coexist? And they are bike lanes. Mm -hmm. They are, they are. <laughs> and I, I, I think, but if you look at what's actually even allowed in them and has been for a long time, it's electric skateboards, it's electric mm -hmm. scooters, it's electric bicycles, it's cargo bicycles that have three wheels and kids being taken to school, it's wheelchairs, mobility devices. And so I think generally what regulators have proposed is said if we put a cap on the speed of let's say 20 or 25 miles per hour, if we put a cap on the power level, if we put a cap on the weight of these vehicles, we can't obviously put like a two-ton vehicle in the bike lane. But if you can, you know, put a cargo bike that's got you taking your kids to school, that's a perfectly normal use, even if it's electrically assisted. And so what I suspect will happen is that lane will move from just being pedal bicycles to a variety of small, lightweight vehicles, probably with some kind of electric assist, um, that are much more efficient and have much less of a footprint. And there's plenty of cases, especially in countries and cities that have um, invested in infrastructure. Um, or even in San Francisco, if you look at the Embarcadero, which is right outside, this beautiful, wide multi-use path has pedestrians and cyclists and scooter riders and skateboard riders happily coexisting because it's a wide space. And the history of our cities has been to shrink that space and to make the sidewalk narrower and narrower in space of more car lanes and more parking spaces. And I think that what's going to happen, hopefully, is that those parking spaces and car lanes actually give way to more multi-use space that's more efficient. Let's talk about data because there's the there's, data is is key to all of this. Uh, Megan Rose Dickey, you know, uh, when Uber and Lyft came on the scene, regulators were playing catch up and they didn't really get the data out of those companies. Now with scooters, you know, what what are we learning from bike share scooters? It's probably really early, but tell us what the data is uh, telling us in terms of you know the social patterns and commute patterns people are using these new tools. Yeah, so I mean, what what cities like like San Francisco are um, looking for from these scooter companies? is information around trip data because essentially this the pilot program that the city of San Francisco is doing is a, is its purpose is to see if electric scooters can actually work in the city and actually like maybe reduce traffic or like you know like by by getting more people on scooters and fewer people in cars so that's why they need that trip data to to really see how it kind of compares to a world without the electric scooters versus a world with them and Stuart Cohen, that didn't happen so much with, with Uber and Lyft because the, the regulators didn't make handing over the data a condition of getting a permit. And that, that kind of genie was out of the bottle. Is that being addressed this time where it's like, oh, you, you know, you want a permit, give us your data, you'll get your permit. Uh, it is. It's been interesting to watch the evolution. Uh, you know, regulators were caught off guard early on by these new business models. Um, but the uh, permit application for the scooters is really fascinating uh, because uh, San Francisco has had time uh, to kind of create a whole new mobility uh, framework. They're requiring everything from uh, data sharing to outreach in multiple languages to low-income discounts. Uh, there's about 40 uh, uh, very prescriptive items to be able to apply for this permit. And at the end of the day, you might get 250 scooters at first or 500. So uh, the fact that 12 of these applications went in um, so quickly, even though it was so prescriptive, really just shows 
two things. It, it shows how much interest uh, and how much potential these scooters have, uh, certainly in the eyes of kind of venture capitalists. And it shows how regulators are quickly coming up to speed on, oh, yeah, we kind of control the streets. We can ask for uh, things that meet our equity and climate and other goals. Let's talk about that investor fervor. Uh, Sanjay Jastord, you know, how much money can be made renting out scooters a dollar at a time? Um, well, I would say it's more about how we use transportation. So if you think about the transportation market by distance and say, how many short trips are there to be provided uh, versus how many medium length trips and how many long trips, most of it is the short trip. And especially as cities get more dense, as more of us are living in those cities, as more options um, become available to use kind of the right vehicle or the right type of system for a certain kind of trip versus another, the short trip market's actually very large. Um, and so if you look at the utilization of these vehicles, I think it's it points to the need that they're solving. So for example, it was a, about a mile and a half for me to get here. And, you know, I could have used a car, but it would have been $8. I could have walked, but it would have been about 30 minutes, uh, you know, each way. And instead, I used the jump bike, the electric bikes, and it cost me $2. And, um, and I'm sure by the time I got here, 10 or 20 minutes later, it was already being used by someone else. So I think investors are seeing a lot of potential for people to spend a lot of money on this. Transportation is a huge portion of our spending as consumers. Uh, it affects all of us, and it has huge externalities like how much you pay for real estate depends on your access to transportation. And so anything that makes transportation more affordable, more accessible, uh, more equitable, potentially is worth a lot. Now, the question of when the valuation should be at a certain amount and what you have to show as a company to get there is a different question, but I think the potential for this to be a huge industry is definitely there. And the greenhouse gas reduction potential is huge. Greenhouse gases from transportation, about 28% of all greenhouse gases in this country. We're talking about new mobility at Climate One. Time for our lightning round. I'll mention a noun, uh, and you're going to say the first thing that comes to mind, or unfiltered, reckless abandon, whatever that comes to your mind first, and then we'll also have a true and false portion. So first, uh, Sanjay Dastur, what comes to mind when I say scooter bros? Mm. <laughs> Uh, unfortunate. Megan Rose Dickey, zombie cars. Uh, dramatic. Stuart Cohen, Koch brothers. Ooh, transit killers. New York Times story recently about them opposing uh, funding for transit systems around the country. Uh, true or false, uh, Megan Rose Dickey, most scooter startups will fail. <laughs> I'm going to go with true. true. Uh, Sanjay Dastur. Most news startups will also fail. Uh, well, most startups fail, so true. Uh, Stuart Cohen, <laughs> mass transit is a great marketing name to get people onto trains and buses. Very false. <laughs> Sanjay Dastur, true or false, one day a big automaker will buy an electric scooter company. True. Last yeah. one, uh, true or false, Megan Rose Dickey, you recently visited a tooth straightening startup and found out you needed a root canal. Yes, but what does that have to do with it? I don't know. I just saw it on your Twitter feed, so I think it would yeah, close with it. Yeah, root canal's done. I have my crown. It's been, it was a whole thing, but yeah. Things you, <laughs> things you do for your job. You put it on your Twitter feed. Let's give them a round for getting through that. You're listening to a conversation about new forms of shared and electric transit. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks just how much energy we can save by not choosing a car for our shortest trips. What's really interesting about vehicles that are designed for the bike lane is that the consumption per mile is so low that you could really look at 
uh, how do you reduce the energy footprint of our transportation needs in a city. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the new urban mobility with Megan Rose Dickey, senior reporter with TechCrunch, Stuart Cohen, executive director of Transform, and Sanjay Dastur, CEO of Skip Scooters. Here's Greg. Sanjay, talk about job creation. One of the criticisms of Uber and Lyft is that those are not really real jobs. They're, they're, they're sidelines for people. Some similar things happening in scooters where people can collect scooters and charge them overnight, get paid. So address the employment and job side of the scooter. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, the fact that I could choose to start a new job, you know, in the gig economy and a week later or even less to be earning money is really powerful, right? When people have a change in their financial circumstances or when they just choose to, to make a change in their life, um, the ability to kind of onboard that very quickly versus going through a vocational program or a long training program or a university degree means that you can really start earning money quickly, whether that's through startups like Airbnb and renting out your home or, you know, Instacart and DoorDash and Postmates and Uber and Lyft, you know, you can earn money in a lot of different ways. So I think um, this is another way for people to do that. And it's, it's great because it matches that need and that desire from folks with the fact that these scooters do need to get charged and moved and everything. I think in the long run, it's important, like with all of these companies, to have some kind of sustainable um, and predictable way for people to engage on the labor side. I mean, whether that's with training, whether that's with you know benefits, whether they should be contractors or W-2 employees, I mean, that, that's an important conversation that, that we're seeing. And I think especially for transportation systems, um, if you look at mass transit, if you look at uh, ride share now especially, um, there's a sense like these are here to stay. And so we should be investing not just for the next 30 days or 60 days of the startup's life, but actually over many years to make sure this is an important part of the fabric of the, of the community. Um, so we're making a lot of investments in San Francisco towards training for things like maintaining the scooters, repairing them. Um, we've made some big commitments to some groups um, as part of our permit process to say, look, we'd actually like to do this the right way and not just uh, bring up a bunch of gig economy workers um, and then have no nothing for them on the back end. Megan Rose Dickey, will, will those gig economy workers come out and, and after they pay for the electricity, right. <laughs> are they coming out ahead? It's funny. My boss, he he asked me if I would like sign up to be a lime juicer or whatever, <laughs> and I, which is like what they call their chargers. Um, and I think you can get like at least like five dollars per scooter or something. Um, but then I don't know. I had to like fill out like a W nine and blah blah blah, and then it would, could like complicate my taxes. And then I was just thinking, well, like, what about my energy bill? Like, can I expense my energy bill? So I said <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, I think that's so. That was one one issue. Like, I'm not sure if these people are going to see like higher energy bills. But but also just the the issue with the gig economy is that there's no insurance, there's no health benefits. And so you're really just kind of on your own. So for this to be, even though, yes, some companies are saying, well, like, we're providing jobs to people in these low-income areas. It's like, okay, cool, but these aren't, like, really good jobs. Like, these aren't jobs that are going to really, like, help people with their quality of life. Right. It sounds pretty darn complicated, what you just described, going up through all those hoops. Just trying to understand your electricity bill without charging scooters is, is, is a challenge. Stuart Cohen, before we go to audience questions, I want to come back to the Times Square, the New York City mm -hmm. story, because that was really seminal. That really set off a national mm -hmm. wave of, you know, redoing American cities and bikes. So tell us the Times Square story that happened under Mayor Bloomberg. Oh, sure. So uh, they had a visionary Department of Transportation commissioner, Jeanette Sadakhan, who really 
said, you know, these streets are for all people and not just for vehicles. And uh, in Manhattan, the most dramatic thing, they made, created many squares uh, and many bike lanes, but they Times Square, where you could barely walk on the sidewalk and everybody's trying to take pictures and it was a dangerous situation. They started with uh, kind of one of the biggest forms of what they call tactical urbanism, where you just set something up for six months or a year as a pilot project. Sometimes you could do it for a day just by painting or a parking day where you take over a parking lot. Uh, and they set it up. There was conjecture that there would be, you know, congestion was already crazy, so it would, you know, the uh, people wouldn't be able to get through on, tra on, on uh, the traffic, um, but they made it work, uh, and uh, the traffic mostly works about the same as it did before uh, in terms of the car speed, but what you now have is this incredible place, this gathering place, uh, where uh, most of the street space has been given over to people, and they've now made it permanent. At first, they threw down beach chairs, and they made it permanent. <laughs> but the great thing is it's being replicated all over the country. Uh, it was the most highly visible one. Um, and you even see places that you don't think of in Indianapolis or Fort Worth, Texas, um, saying, hey, we should make our downtowns vibrant and have that attract you know, residents and businesses and, and other things. So in Fort Worth, they had 35... Uh, acres in the center of the town, and a lot of it was parking lot, and they started showing movies and having games and dances, and uh, and then it built the momentum for this uh, Sundance Square uh, that it's called, and now it's kind of uh, just a wonderful, you know, outdoor living room for the city, uh, and the more that we can create places, you know, we used to have uh, 10 years ago, talk about walkable urbanism, really great places to walk, and now you know, we're increasingly focused on kind of sittable urbanism, places that you just want to be, uh, want to be able to be with friends, family. Um, and the trick is how we keep these places affordable because it's incredible. Once you have a wonderful urban place like these places you might visit around the world in Europe and elsewhere, uh, it's a huge attractor. And the thing that we're losing in San Francisco with it and, and other places is the diversity that originally made it great uh, and that attracted so many of us. So I think with this conversation, a lot of it ends up needing to focus on equity. And uh, the reason we're in the game on, on all of this new mobility, we have a report called Framework for Social Equity and New Mobility. It's kind of how do we make sure that if low-income folks are spending 31% of their income on transportation now, that as we roll out these new models, they're incredibly accessible, they're located in the places for the people that need them most, and they're used not as a form of displacement and gentrification like they're sometimes seen, but they're used as a way to bring down the transportation costs and increase access so we could actually keep people here. We're talking about new mobility with Stuart Cohen from Transform, Megan Rose Dickey from TechCrunch, and Sanjay Dastur from Boosted Boards. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Thank you for your time. Um, my question is, why do you guys think the, the scooter companies are kind of being singled out for this data sharing and, you know, other aggressive members when, historically speaking, companies like Airbnb or Uber had a demonstrably negative impact on our community and there was none of this type of, like, big backlash? I'd like to, Megan? Well, I mean, I think there has been a lot of backlash with, like, Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and now cities having seen what happens if they're not proactive about these new types of technologies and services. Like now that they know what it's like when they yeah are not proactive about it, now they're saying, okay, like 
we want this data upfront. And in order for you to operate here, like we need the data as opposed to asking for it like retroactively. And oddly enough, it's the most visible uh, even though they're small, uh, Airbnb, you didn't know your neighbor was necessarily doing it. And Uber and Lyft, maybe you noticed the decal in the back. Mm -hmm. uh, and But I mean, suddenly there are 5,000 on the streets, but you know, but you didn't really notice it coming. These were kind of en masse dropped on the streets and, and were literally obstructing your way in a way that none of those other forms did. Plus, as Megan said, all of the learning that's taken place, uh, regulators realized, oh, we actually own our streets and we can make you know, regulations about this. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Uh, thanks. Thanks for the discussion. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about equity and access to transportation in today's panel. Uh, and if you look at current mass transit systems, low-income areas are typically woefully underserved by buses, trains, what have you. And in some cases, Uber, I believe, uh, is already providing mass transit services subsidized by the city because they can do it cheaper and more reactively. Now, that said, in this autonomous future that we're talking about, what's to stop owners of autonomous vehicles that can afford them using them in a malevolent way as opposed to a benevolent way. And you can think of a world in which Uber is already developing these vehicles. People don't trust this company. How will consumer perceptions come into play here as well as the actual outcomes of trying to guide these companies into acting appropriately with this technology? We'd like to tackle that. Uh, yes, time. boy, there's a whole range of issues there. I hadn't really thought of uh, malevolence. I, I think... Uh, much more of it might just be kind of on the profit motive and how do you get market share, uh, which may have outcomes that are, you know, essentially seen as malevolent. Um, I think it's really important that, that this permit application for the scooters kind of points us in some of the direction of how we can put regulations on uh, so that um, we are encouraging the outcomes like having the accessibility for low-income folks and a requirement that it's going to serve them up front and as part of the process of permitting. Um, I, I do know that, you know, Lyft uh, is seeing some of their future going to our fleet. And in general, one of the benefits that we might have of fleets is that we could have it be more climate friendly. Uh, it's likely that many of these fleets will be electric uh, and it will be people's first experience in electric vehicles. And like we heard here about people that got onto a scooter or on a bike and then decided to buy one, um, it could be one of the ways that we usher in uh, you know, greater use of electric. And I, I think actually with Lyft, they, they've agreed to do 100% renewable energy with it. So maybe we should be uh, requiring those kind of things as we move more towards these systems. Sanjay Destor, talk about the energy you know, density per mile. You've done some calculations in terms of like what it, what, how much energy it takes to move someone in an electric car on a scooter, because there's really an energy efficiency angle here that we haven't quite touched on. Yeah, yeah. So there's been a lot of talk about moving from fossil fuel emission vehicles like gasoline-powered cars or diesel-powered cars to electric cars. And then a lot of discussion around, well, where is that energy coming from that charges the battery? Is it coming from a, a coal plant or is it coming from a renewable energy source? But one interesting part of this whole discussion, which we haven't seen much of yet, is the fact that the energy consumption per mile for something like a car is very different than it is for something like a scooter. And so I, I think um, uh, one of you brought up the idea of the cost of charging these scooters in your home, and is that something you should deduct or have to think about? But actually, you're using you know less than a kilowatt hour of, of electricity, which is you know on the order of of cents uh, to charge one vehicle and to get potentially 10, 20, 30 miles of range out of it. That same range in something like a car is about 20 times more electricity. Uh, that same amount of range on something like a motorcycle is about five times more 
electricity. So if you think about the energy footprint, you know, you have obviously the manufacturing cost of something like, you know, this 15, 20 pounds versus, you know, of aluminum or steel versus 3,000 or 4,000 pounds worth of aluminum or steel that you're using for that trip. Then you also have the consumption per mile traveled. And what's really interesting about vehicles that are designed for the bike lane um, that are, are electric or electric assist, like these scooters and, and uh, electric bikes and other things like that, is that the consumption per mile is so low that you could really look at uh, how do you reduce the energy footprint of our transportation needs in a city uh, versus just saying, okay, those same trips that they were done with a car might be consuming significantly more of our resources from power plants or from other sources. Yeah, very little of the energy that goes into a car is actually moving that body. It's moving all the metal that that body is sitting in. It's, it's that, and also it's the fact that the car is really designed for highways. Right? Every car has to be safe on the highway, and so most of the infrastructure of the car, the airbags, the safety systems, you know, the tires are designed to go 100 or 150 miles an hour before they you know, have any kind of issue. And so the efficiency you get out of designing something to only go 20 miles an hour is actually much higher um, than if you had to design that vehicle to also handle highway speed. So I think the more we're choosing the right vehicle for short-distance, low-speed urban transport as a vehicle designed for that and not just something that happens to do that as well as a highway trip, uh, the better off we'll be from an energy and resource consumption perspective. I want to wrap up with talking about China. Stuart Cohen, you know, uh, ultimately, you know, electrification, people talk about China, a lot of the bike sharing, DD, a lot of this emerged in China. A lot of people probably seen those photos of all those huge graveyard of abandoned bicycles. So tell yeah. us how, how you know, the future of mobility may be happening in China. Well, well, the, I think the future of a lot of things are happening in China, <laughs> but um, uh, but we're starting to see the shift. I mean, China's uh, trajectory on owning personal ownership of vehicles has, you know, it's just skyrocketed. Um, and uh, uh, luckily, I think that the sharing economy there, uh, backed by venture capital, um, has the potential to start to turn that. And so, um, you know, there's a lot to be seen, but but it happens there on a mass scale that is enabling a lot of these technologies to be rolled out here. Sanjay Destour, can a trade war with China affect any of this? The supply chain of scooters made in China, how's this going to be a bump in the road? I, I think that could change the economics of the business slightly um, in terms of what the vehicles cost and what it costs to get them here, if there's delays in being able to produce vehicles and put them on the road. But I think in the grand scheme of things, it won't be an issue. I think the interesting thing about China as, as an example for us to leave with is that Didi, which is one of the largest uh, rideshare companies in China, saw a significant reduction in the demand for their vehicles and their services below three miles once bike share became mature in certain markets. And I think like if you were to look at San Francisco or any other city and say, would you rather that those less than three mile trips were happening by car or by something like a bicycle or a scooter, I think most of us would choose the latter. I lived in Beijing in the 80s uh, before people had family cars. It was a lot easier to get around then. Rode my bike all over Beijing. I'd take, it, I'd take Beijing in the 80s for Beijing uh, in terms of mobility. Now, uh, we didn't see a lot of this coming. I want to close with Megan Rose Dickey. I don't think people two years ago would see that, well, this, you know, explosion of scooters and mobility on American streets. What else out there is that we may not be seeing? What innovation do you think that's out there that might get bigger that isn't on a horizon yet? Um, flying taxis. I mean, which is already kind of on the horizon. Uber's doing a really big push in, in that area. They're saying by 2020, they're going to be doing demo flights and 2022, they'll be commercially available. So that's next. Greg Dalton has been talking about new ways to get around town with Megan Rose Dickey, a senior reporter with TechCrunch, Stuart Cohen, 
Executive Director of Transform, a transit advocacy group, and Sanjay Dastur, co-founder of Boosted Boards and CEO of Skip Scooters. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.